0: This podcast discusses domestic violence, criminal behavior, murder, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. Snowflakes swirled outside the Flying J Travel Center in Lake Point, Utah. They danced on the wind that also buffeted big rigs on the nearby interstate. Denise worked the register alone. The only other employee on shift at the time was out shoveling snow off of the walks.
1: It was around midnight 12:30, and I was busier than normal because of this, the storm. It was coming down like crazy.: Someone shouted, "Hey, Charlie!" across the store. A few moments
0: later, a man in a leather jacket stepped up to the counter.
1: And it's this really tall man carrying a baby, and I said, "Is there anything else for you tonight?" And I'd look down at his stuff. And it was uh, rescue
0: tape. A pair of smaller gloved hands dropped a couple other items on the counter. Crackers and licorice. Denise glanced up to see a woman standing by the man,
1: smiling. So I looked up and I made eye contact with her. And then the dad said, hang on a minute. Let me buy this stuff and then we'll go camping. So quickly, I turned around and I looked out the window because I knew it was snowing like crazy. And I looked over at the RV islands that was just behind my right shoulder, and there was nobody there. There was no RVs or anything there. And I thought, camping and this? And so I turned a little bit further, and I seen the silver minivan sitting on pump six.
0: Denise thought this woman looked very well put together, especially considering it was nearly 1 a.m. But she also noticed red rings around the woman's eyes, as if she had been crying. The toddler in the man's arms stirred.
1: And he looked at his mom and I looked at his little nose. He was just such a cute little man. His little nose was all scrunched up. And I says, well, he doesn't look too happy about going camping. And she did the mom thing, rubbed his little cheeks and smiled and says, yeah, he's pretty tired.
0: The mom scooped the boy from the man's arm and walked over to the door joining another slightly older boy who was pushing on the glass, trying to get outside. Together, they walked out to the minivan. The man paid for the stuff with cash and told Denise to put the change on Pump 6. Then he left as well. Denise didn't think about that encounter again until two months later, when she saw a picture of Josh Powell on the news. She called West Valley Police in a state of shock.
1: I truly believe I was the last person to see her. I truly do. And that's very haunting.
0: Denise told the police she had seen Josh and Susan Powell, as well as their boys, together in the Flying J at 12.30 a.m. on December 7th of 2009.
1: They did request the video surveillance, and much to my surprise, Flying J only kept their film for 10 days and then they would record over it again so it wasn't available for them.
0: Denise provided a written statement. She told detectives what the people she had seen were wearing. The detectives, in turn, asked her why she hadn't reported this sighting for weeks.
1: When they asked me what took you so long, that was gut-wrenching. It just made me feel like I was discredited so to speak, when they asked me that. And that was a horrible feeling. Here, something so tragic has happened and I'm trying to help because they were there. They were there. And and how do I convince them? They've got to know that they were there and, and believe that they were there.
0: This is cold. Episode 16, Chasing Leads. I'm Dave Cauley. Right back after this. There are so many aspects to the Susan Powell investigation, it's been hard to get them all into cold. If you want even more exclusive details regarding Susan's story, head over to Wondery.com and sign up now for access to bonus content you won't find anywhere else. That's Wondery.com plus. Again, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear three bonus episodes you won't get anywhere else.
1: Do you ever feel like you just need some support to get really healthy? Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. And
2: I'm Melanie Douglas.
1: I'm on a journey to find lasting health in my everyday life.
2: And I'm here to help. We'll find fun, doable ways to improve your health through small and simple changes.
1: It's the Really Healthy Podcast. Subscribe for free on iTunes or the KSL News Radio app.
0: Denise has harbored some hard feelings for West Valley police over the last nine years. I had
1: a lot of anger issues, frustration with them and stuff, because I had such valuable information that I felt was discarded. But then, you know, 10 years' time and you experience other things, I come to realize how difficult it is for them to put anything through the system.
0: Here's the problem with Denise's tip. It can't be verified not by any other witnesses, not by surveillance camera footage, not by financial records. By the time Denise reported it, a lot of information had come out in news reports. Police had to
3: ask themselves, were her memories influenced by what she had seen on TV? The more information that gets out, that's more information now you have to sift through in these tips, and these leads, and trying to identify, okay, is this credible information? Or is this information that they've obtained because of information we've released? By the start of 2013, West Valley Police had received more
0: than 800 tips in the Powell case. They ran the gamut from simple suggestions of where to look for Susan, to detailed psychic conversations with a ghostly figure, to simple but unverifiable stories like Denise's. People reported sightings of Susan in Georgia, Montana, Hawaii, and Alaska. A woman named Robin claimed to have seen Josh and the boys at the Comfort Inn in Sandy, Utah, while working there on the morning of December 7th of 2009. Police went to the hotel and verified there was no record of Josh having stayed there. A card dealer at the Montego Bay Casino in West Wendover, Nevada, claimed Josh was a regular at his table on weekends. A woman named Darlene said she had flirted with Josh on an elevator at the Imperial Palace Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas because he smelled nice. Perhaps the oddest tip of all, though, came from the Deuces Wild Gentlemen's Club in South Salt Lake, Utah.
3: His erratic, belligerent behavior is what brought attention to him.
0: Police heard from a patron of Deuces Wild one week after Susan's disappearance. The man, named Sherman, told them on the afternoon of December 7th, he he'd spotted a guy at the club who seemed very drunk.
1: Sherman was sitting next to the man and asked him if he was okay.
3: He kept repeating that he had a really bad day and he had a story to tell. When I ask him to tell the story, he says, no, you don't want to hear my story. I've just had a really bad day.
0: A few days later, Sherman saw Josh Powell on the news and thought he looked a lot like the man he'd encountered at the club.
1: Sherman says the man was shouting at the strippers and the bartender. He tried to take another patron's drink. The bar's owner says the man was acting erratically.
3: Talking to himself, speaking out loud, wasn't really making any sense.
0: A couple of officers went to Deuces Wild. Other patrons recounted a story about a man who'd caused a ruckus on December 7th. The bartender told detectives this belligerent customer was not a regular, and it seemed like he had been on something. He did look like Josh Powell, but she couldn't say for sure that it was
4: him.
1: Police say they aren't able to confirm it was, in fact, Josh Powell at Deuces Wild, the day his wife Susan was reported missing.
4: I'm not trying to discredit uh, the individuals involved, uh, but uh, sometimes, you know, the eyewitness accounts can can be mistaken. So you can't rely wholly on that. You try and verify. And at this point, uh, we are not able to verify through uh, independent means that that was Josh.
0: Bad day guy had arrived about 2 p.m. and left the bar at about 4.30 p.m. Josh's phone records showed he was near his home in West Valley at 3 p.m. and down south at Point of the Mountain a half an hour later. Josh could not possibly have been at Deuces Wild. There was another big problem with the story. Josh didn't drink. His journals included several references to his not liking alcohol or even being around other people when they were drinking.
5: It was starting to wear me down to to have to be around alcohol in the house and...
6: Steve Powell also wrote about the Deuces Wild story once it made the news. Even Josh's detractors came out and said they did not believe the story. Josh has never been to a strip club, even though he does not feel there's anything wrong with such an activity.
0: Josh's attorney, Scott Williams, responded to a news story about the Deuces Wild tip by saying he had no idea why anybody would make that kind of claim about Josh. A woman called 911 shortly before midnight on December 11th of 2009, just five days into the search for Susan, and told the dispatcher she'd been having an affair with Josh Powell. She said her name was Christine. Through slurred words, she described having met Josh at a comedy club. She said he'd claimed his wife had died of cancer. She'd only realized that wasn't true, when she saw Susan's face on the news. The call disconnected. Christine called 911 again. A few times, actually. Dispatch handed the information off to West Valley City Police. An officer got Christine on the phone again just before 1 a.m. and thought she sounded drunk. Christine said she lived in Oregon, even though she was calling from Utah on a phone with a Utah area code. The officer asked Christine for Josh's phone number to test her honesty. She became upset and hung up the phone. Police traced the number Christine had called from to an address about 10 blocks to the east of where Josh and Susan lived. A patrol officer went to the house and knocked on the door at about 3 a.m. No one answered. Christine's tip went cold. Then, in July of 2010, Detective Ellis Maxwell double-checked Christine's number against Josh's phone records. It did turn up, but only once, just after midnight on December 12th of 2009, the same night she had called 911. The phone records showed no one picked up at the Powell house. Christine had never talked to Josh, at least not on any phone West Valley police knew about. Ellis kept digging. He learned the phone number Christine had called from actually belonged to a woman named
3: Courtney. She called in relatively early after this made the news. And uh, she left a bogus name and filed these allegations that, you know, she was having an affair with this guy. And, you know, that took a little bit of time to track her down.
0: Police made contact with Courtney again in August. She was hesitant to talk.
3: And it's like, eh, you know, obviously we can't force people, but kind of doesn't work like that, right? They convinced Courtney to come into the station for a chat. She sat down
0: with the detectives and told her story. Courtney said she'd met Josh through the phone chat service LiveLinks and that they had dated for about six to eight months. Also, Josh hadn't used his real name. He'd gone by an alias. John Staley. Courtney claimed Josh had paid her about $800 for sex over the course of their relationship. He'd meet her at the Hunter Library, then they would drive up one of the nearby canyons to make out or have sex. Courtney even took a drive with the detectives to visit those spots in Mill Creek and Butterfield Canyons, on the outskirts of the Salt Lake Valley.
3: We did a little (laughs) field trip, and uh, Yeah, nothing evolved from it. The whole thing smelled fishy.
0: Ellis asked Courtney to take a lie detector test, and she did not want to do that. Was Courtney telling the truth about John Staley? Ellis
3: didn't think so. She never called him. They never had communication, stuff like that. So, you know, it was put to bed. The COLD team reached out to Courtney to ask for her side of the story,
0: but she never responded, casting further doubt on her story. But what Courtney claimed at the time did lend credence to an even wilder tale from a man named Andrew Anderson.
5: You know my background, right?
0: That was the first question Andrew asked me when we sat down to talk about the Powell case. What he meant was he had done time.
5: I was just letting you know that that's the case.
0: Andrew Anderson's troubles with the law started in 2007 when he was 21 with an arrest for forgery in West Jordan, Utah. Court records show the busts cascaded from there. By 2009, he had racked up more arrests for forgery and financial fraud. They resulted in the filing of felony charges in at least 15 separate cases. The other misdemeanors scattered in between were just garnish, like parsley on a plate. Anderson resolved most of those cases with plea deals. He spent some time in jail, but bounced out on probation before long. He just kept getting into trouble. So in February of 2010, a judge ordered Anderson to prison for up to five years.
5: When I went to prison, I went to prison for like checks, credit cards, all that.
0: The Utah Department of Corrections operates two prisons, one at Point of the Mountain, midway between the main population centers of Salt Lake City and Provo, Utah, the other in the rural central Utah town of Gunnison but many state inmates end up serving their sentences in county jails because the two prisons are overcrowded. Anderson told me he spent a lot of time in different jails over the course of his sentence.
5: Washington County sucks. Davis County sucks. It's all right, but it sucks. Uh, Weber County, Cash County, they all suck. Salt Lake County sucks.
0: Andrew was in the Box Elder County Jail when, in the summer of 2010, he reached out to U.S. Marshal Daryl Spencer and West Valley Police Detective Gavin Cook. He described meeting Josh Powell in July of 2009 at a place called Fat Cats in the city of South Salt Lake. He was hanging out there with a few people when a woman named Summer walked in with a guy he didn't recognize.
5: Summer was a stripper, and she was just using him because he was just paying, just give money, 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 money.
0: Summer seemed close, physically, with the guy. They were kissing and hanging on to one another. Andrew told the investigators Summer had met this guy through a phone chat service, possibly live links or quest chat. Come to think of it, maybe it was on Craigslist. He wasn't sure.
5: He's like possessive. Very possessive. Like how and like if she would talk to me or say she went to get a beer or something, he'd be all weird about it. Does that make sense? Like why are you talking to that dude?
0: It did not end at Fat Cat's.
5: Well, that's where I first met him, and then, you know, I've been to Wendover with him and a couple other places, so...
0: This guy did not go by the name Josh. He had a different name, but Andrew couldn't remember it. Summer probably had a different name, too, for all Andrew knew.
5: I don't know if that's her stripper name or real name or anything, but you know how I'm on the street in the game, all because, she, you know, she likes to smoke meth and party and do all that stuff, and... She was a stripper. Not that that makes her any different than anybody else. It was her job.
0: Andrew had first met Summer through a mutual acquaintance who'd been on the same ankle monitor jail release program with him.
5: The people I was hanging out with before were, like, gutter, I guess you want to say it. Out committing crimes, doing all that stuff.
0: Andrew said he was locked up in December of 2009 when he first saw Josh Powell on the news. He was sure Josh was the possessive guy he had met that summer day at Fat Cat's. He started hearing through the grapevine that Josh and Summer had had an argument. Summer threatened to tell Josh's wife about their affair. Josh said he had already killed his wife.
5: For some reason, he spilled beans to her, so...
0: (laughs) The story, as Andrew had heard it, went that Josh had dumped Susan's body in a mine or buried her at a campground out in the desert. For Ellis... This sounded just plausible enough.
3: There could be, there could have been still something there. But it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have been information that would have found Susan. It, this would have been information that you could discredit Josh's credibility. The idea of Josh having
0: led a secret double life, spending his money on strippers and gambling trips, caught the imagination of detectives.
3: There was a small portion of it that I I kind of believed. I still kind of believe maybe Josh was involved in, you know, maybe some prostitution. And, uh, you know, it's, it's possible. And, you know, we definitely looked at it. But Andrew's information did not exactly
0: come from a position of pure altruism.
5: Said, well, I can't do a dang thing sitting in here. How can I go find Summer? You get me on the street with a furlough or something, get me out of prison, then I could do it.
0: Andrew told the investigators Summer was slender, white, blonde, and probably in her late 20s or early 30s. She might have worked at Deuce's Wild, the same strip club where patrons had reported seeing a guy who looked like Josh on the day Susan disappeared. That coincidence was not lost on the police.
3: Here we've got Deuces Wild, we've got Courtney, we've got Andrew with this story, and it's like, this is kind of weird, and, you know, there very well could be something there.
0: Detectives went to work. They made a list of possible summers to compare against a spreadsheet of licensed exotic dancers. Police records also say Andrew suggested they talk to another woman who had been at Fat Cat's that day. Her name was Emily, and she was attending a family reunion in Michigan. Police hopped a plane and went to see Emily.
5: It looks bad on me, even though I didn't give Emily's name, they something, I don't know, you know, her, how her name got brought up. And I said, I was hanging out with her at the time. She very well no, could know her. That's somewhere to start.
0: Emily met the investigators at Fayette Historic State Park on Michigan's Upper Peninsula. They asked if she had ever been to Fat Cats. She said no. They asked if she knew Andrew. Again, she said no. Emily admitted she had been involved in fraud and forgery. Her memory was bad because she had spent much of late 2009 strung out on methamphetamine. In fact, she had been locked up for the first half of 2010. Her trip to Michigan was probably against the rules of her release. The police put the screws to Emily, and her memory
3: started to come back.
0: Yes, she did know Andrew, but only by his
3: alias. His, his moniker name was Cowboy. <laughs> yes,
0: Emily knew Summer. They had printed checks and ID cards together. Yes, she had been to Fat Cats and remembered seeing a guy acting weird, aloof, and possessive of Summer. He had drank beer, spent time on a PDA, and drove off at the end of the night in a dark-colored SUV. That didn't sound like the Josh Powell Ellis Maxwell knew. Still, it was a lead.
3: Yeah, knowing Josh, you're thinking, nah, he's he's not the type of person that would get involved in prostitution. But being in police for, for 20 years, nothing really surprises me anymore.
0: Detectives identified more possible summer candidates. One lived in Moab, a desert resort town in the southeastern part of Utah. They checked her out, even visiting her apartment in person. She was not the right one. Another possible summer met with police in mid-August of 2010. She agreed to take a lie detector test, which she passed. Andrew said "Eh, she wasn't the right summer when he later saw her picture.
5: They were going to St. George. They were going to Moab. They were Daryl and Maxwell were all over the place, man.
0: That same month, Andrew sent U.S. Marshal Daryl Spencer a letter asking for help getting moved to a better jail or into a residential drug treatment program. He said it would free him up to spend all his time searching for Summer.
5: I didn't like where I was at, so Daryl was helping me get moved around to where I wanted to be at, where the prison had space at the better jails for helping them. And finally he just got me back to the prison where I wanted to be.
0: There was a problem, though. Andrew's story kept shifting. He added new bits, like that Summer was a Featherwood, or female member of a white supremacist gang. In spite of not being able to positively identify Summer, Andrew did provide information on other cases that seemed to check out. Toward the end of September, police learned Emily had returned from Michigan. Word was getting around that she, too, was on the hunt for summer. So this
3: whole time you've been out and you've been in amongst these people, you haven't obtained any information that we need on the summer ground? i But tried. you said you could get it.
0: At the end of September, Emily showed up at West Valley Police Headquarters for an interview.
2: When I first, when I first ran into these guys, they came up and saw me, they are like, do you know who someone's are? Do you know who someone's are? Have you ever been here, here, here? And I'm like, no. And I honestly didn't think I had. And yeah. then when they started like,
4: kind of jogging, my memory mentioned different places, times, people. I was kind of like, well, that could be, you know what I mean?
0: And I wasn't lying. She had agreed to undergo a lie detector test.
2: Do you know Summer? No. Is this the month of September?
4: Yes.
3: Have you ever talked to Summer about the murdered wife?
4: No.
0: So police decided to put Andrew and Emily together together in the same room.
5: I was in Davis County Jail, and all of a sudden, Emily showed up there one day.
0: They left Andrew and Emily alone for a little bit, then split the two of them up and asked each what they had talked about. Andrew and Emily gave two different accounts of their conversation. What's more, Emily admitted to having used meth that very morning. In her purse, the police reported finding another person's checkbook, credit cards, and ID. The police arrested her and handed her over to a probation officer who had just obtained an arrest warrant. A week later, the police also gave Andrew a lie detector test. They asked if he actually believed it was Josh Powell he had seen at Fat Cats back in July of 2009. Andrew said yes. The test did not reveal any signs of deception.
5: They gave me lie detector test after lie detector test, and I passed them all.
0: Andrew kept writing letters. On April 25th of 2011, he sent a letter to detectives Gavin Cook and Ellis Maxwell. He said he'd been in touch with people who knew where Summer was hiding. She had agreed to talk in exchange for full immunity and half a million dollars in cash. Andrew's story continued to evolve. He claimed Susan had got wind of Josh spending time on chat lines and going out in public with prostitutes. Enraged, she had planned to leave with the boys. Josh had used his supposed connections in the criminal underworld to keep that from happening. Andrew felt frustrated. He'd given police information, but seemed to get nothing in return.
5: In all honesty, I was... I wanted to help him out, but I was also trying to help myself out because I was given an 18-month sentence. That's what my max was supposed to be, and I did, all, you know, five-plus five years on it.
0: In July of 2011, Andrew told police he had found out who had put out a hit on Josh. He dangled that carrot in an effort to keep from being moved to the prison in Gunnison. At the start of August, Andrew provided a list of possible summer associates, people who might know where to find her. He also told detectives Susan's body could be in some mountains south of Interstate 80 in Utah's West Desert. But the specific directions he gave didn't make any sense. By December, as Josh was fighting for custody of his boys in Washington State, Andrew landed just where he didn't want to be, in Gunnison. He didn't give up trying to work a deal. On the two-year anniversary of Susan's disappearance, he begged for help getting out. In a letter, he claimed to have given police information about Steve Powell possessing child pornography before the August 2011 search warrant raid at Steve's house.
5: I gave them all that information and Stephen Powell got put away for child pornography, all that stuff. And Josh Powell, I said, go look on Josh Powell's computer right now and you have plenty to arrest him.
0: That's a claim that is not backed up by the facts. I asked Andrew to explain that. He stood by his claim that his tip prompted the raid.
5: I liked Maxwell a lot, but as soon as Maxwell got that information about Steve Powell, they were up there arresting him.
0: So I asked Ellis if Andrew's tip in any way contributed.
3: There wasn't anything that uh, Andrew shared with us that benefited the investigation, nothing.
0: Still, a detective drove out to meet with Andrew in January of 2012. Andrew's story changed again. He no longer said Susan's remains were in Utah.
5: Susan Powell's in Idaho, dude. Between Idaho and Washington. That's where she's at.
0: Andrew offered yet more names of people who might find Summer. Some of the people he suggested were incarcerated. Others were living on the streets. Tracking them down was not easy. But police did. None of them shared any useful information. One complained that Andrew... Was nuts.
3: That's a, that's a really good example of depleting your resources and burning up valuable time.
0: Around the start of February of 2012, right around the time Josh killed the boys, police in the city of South Salt Lake served a search warrant at a house frequented by one of the people Andrew had named. West Valley detectives caught wind of it. They compared notes with their colleagues in South Salt Lake. At last, they were able to come up with a likely identity for Summer. They took her picture to the prison in Gunnison and showed it to Andrew. He said she was not the right Summer. Enough was enough. Ellis confronted Andrew.
3: I, I believe I specifically asked him what, what he wanted out of this. What was he looking for? Because the information he was sharing with us uh, you know, wasn't taking us anywhere. We weren't gaining any ground. We weren't getting any evidence. We weren't getting any, any information.
0: Ellis wanted to know why Andrew had not come forward with all of the information at the beginning. He asked Andrew why he, of all people, would be the source. Andrew did not have good answers.
3: Andrew Anderson, yeah, he he burned up a lot of our time. Um, and, you know, we had some very frank conversations with him uh, through that time frame. Uh, and eventually, uh, we shut the door.
0: The most Ellis could say was that
3: someone who looked like Josh might have
0: been at Fat Cats in July of 2009 with a blonde woman who went by the name Summer.
3: Or maybe... It was all bogus. You know, it's kind of ironic that you end up with three leads that are, you know, out of the Salt Lake Valley here that involve Josh and uh, sexual activity. And I think that, uh, you know, you've got to put a little bit more weight into that, into those leads, because it's not your traditional lead of, like, uh, well, for example, the Flying Jay. The allegations there, you know, there was there was that. That was it. As for
0: Andrew, his trouble with the law continued. Prison records show he was released on parole at the end of 2013. Finally, he could hunt down Summer and get her to talk.
5: Well, last time I heard from her was 2012, 2013. Okay. So was she was, she'd write me letters and stuff like that, yeah. Then all of a sudden they stopped, so...
0: <clears throat> in 2014, Andrew was accused of passing forged checks. It resulted in his parole being revoked for half a year. He got out again at the end of 2015.
5: Word on the street when I got out and I tried to relate to Daryl was that she overdosed on heroin. Whether that's true or not, I don't know but I have not seen her around.
0: Then, in 2017, Andrew was accused of stealing his own brother's identity in order to rent an apartment. He cut a plea deal and got off with time served. When I talked to Andrew in June of 2018, he told me he was done looking for summer.
5: The only way to do it is start going to strip clubs and uh, hanging out with escorts and strippers again. And that I don't like that, so that's... Far beyond that.
0: Andrew expressed a lot of anger over how everything had played out. He called West Valley police idiots. It's
5: just frustrating, man. It really is. And I know West Valley feels, or it should at least, have guilt about and know that they screwed up pretty dang bad.
0: But how much time and effort did the investigators spend
3: on a lead that went nowhere? I think they were spun off from information they received from the media. And that's why it's important for us to have those records sealed. I can only imagine if we didn't keep those records sealed and all the information in those affidavits was released, we would have probably ended up with thousands of more tips and leads that we would have had a, you know, wasted resources on for nothing.
0: Ellis said they couldn't ignore Andrew's tip just because it came from an inmate.
3: It, it was likely. I mean, it was something that we definitely had to explore and you know what, if we, would have, if we would have found some evidence there to to support any of those, or all three of them, okay, now we've got, you know, another, we've got a motive, right? I mean, outside of that, our motive is, what? He doesn't want to go to church? We probably spend a little bit more time on that than what we should have, but at the end of the day, You know, it's not going to hurt our investigation. So you do what you got to do.
0: Back after this. West Valley Police were never able to develop solid information to back up any claims of infidelity involving Josh. They even went so far as asking Steve about Summer or Courtney while he was in prison
6: after Josh killed Charlie and Braden, We could not talk Josh into dating. His only concern his whole life was his boys.
0: Questions of infidelity in Josh and Susan's marriage were not just reserved for Josh. West Valley police also had to determine if Susan might have been unfaithful. Three days before Susan disappeared, she typed an email to a male coworker at Wells Fargo Investments.
2: "I've dreamed about at least five coworkers since I've come here. Some dreams are G, some are PG13, and one rated X." It was hard to look at that person for about a month afterwards. Co-workers
0: were not the only ones who crept into Susan's dreams. Mel Gibson made frequent guest appearances. Most of the dreams were innocuous, but she tended to share with people who showed up in them anyway.
2: I really didn't feel like she realized how much she was turning somebody on. That what she was saying was not maybe the, because she was just an open book. It didn't matter if you were a guy or a girl. And so when you're TMI and it's a guy, it's going to have a different effect than if you're TMI and it's a girl.
0: (laughs) That's Linda Bagley, one of Susan's closest work friends. Linda saw it clearly. Susan had admirers. The attention caused problems.
2: I even had a coworker pat my rear while here. Ugh, I retired those jeans from work that very day.
0: Susan wrote that email in September of 2009. She was always very clear about her commitment to her marriage. Some of her admirers chose not to hear that.
2: They got the wrong idea both here and when I was at Fidelity. I'm learning guys don't differentiate married or not, so you don't do date-like things like going out to lunch.
3: She wore her heart and her emotions on her shoulders. She would, uh, if she genuinely cared about you or felt comfortable with you or trusted you, whether if you're a co-worker or a member in her ward or uh, just a neighbor, she she would talk openly with people. You know, other people, I won't single out males, but they may pick up that vibe as being something different, right? They're delivering a message that they're interested, right?
0: Ellis and the West Valley Major Crimes Team obtained a year's worth of Susan's work emails in March of 2010. There were thousands of messages. They had to create a spreadsheet just to keep track of all the people in those conversations. Several men... Stood out from the crowd.
3: We weren't just focusing on Josh. We were looking at everything yeah. and everybody.
0: Ellis knew he had to talk to these co
3: workers. And, you know, that's part of investigative work as well, is recognizing that and saying, gosh, do I really think this person's involved? No. Does it look like it? Could there be a probable chance? Maybe. You've got to prove and disprove. The big scandal
0: of 2009 at Susan's office was the divorce of a woman she worked with and that woman's subsequent marriage to a co-worker. The office romance prompted all kinds of gossip. For Susan, it led to some self-reflection about her own thoughts of divorcing Josh.
2: If I was separated from Josh, I wouldn't already be dating. I'd be hanging out with the girls, dealing with lawyers, trying to get and keep custody of my kids.
0: The guy who she sent that email to had joked Susan and Josh could deal with their marital troubles by buying a copy of the Kama Sutra. Susan's friend and co-worker Amber Hardman told me there was zero chance of Susan having an affair.
2: She liked the guy's... We're flirting with her. But she said she would never act on it, and I believe her. She spent most of her lunch breaks and breaks with me. We'd hang out and walk around the building or go exercise in the exercise room. So, I mean, I know she wasn't spending her extra time at work with these people.
0: Susan's email exchanges with male coworkers always seemed to return to the topic of her marriage.
3: She would make it very clear that she was only interested in Josh. You know, though she would share, you know, her thoughts and her stories and everything else, you know, it would be followed with, you know, how much she cared about Josh and their relationship.
0: And yet one guy in particular caused police concern. His name was Ryan.
7: It's like I told a friend, I'm like, they're talking to me. They're at the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're just making sure we didn't miss anything. And...
0: Ryan and Susan were former co-workers. When they had worked together, he sometimes gave her rides home. West Valley detectives interviewed Ryan more than once.
7: I don't know. She, she always referred to me as her sugar daddy because I'd always bring chocolate uh, <laughs> at work. She was really cool.
0: Susan and Ryan's office friendship had progressed to a point where she privately called him her back burner husband.
7: Yeah, we, we got along great at work. She was a sweetheart. She was just, she was just, uh... yeah, she's great. Um, I don't know, one thing that always struck me is her her boundaries. She would tell me things that my wife should tell me.
0: Ryan, like Susan, was married. Privately, Susan figured if they ever both ended up divorced, he was an option.
7: We kept in touch via email, and she's like, do I come across as a flirt? I'm like, yes, I think you do more than you know. (laughs) Uh.
0: Ryan got along with Josh as well as anyone could. But he didn't respect him much. He knew Josh was a realtor.
7: I would call Josh and ask real estate advice. And then I'd do the exact opposite of what he'd tell me. And I sold my house, go figure.
0: Susan and Ryan fell out of touch for a while after she gave birth to Braden. Then, in October of 2008, he sent her an email out of the blue. It said, I miss you. I should mention here that I contacted Ryan and asked him to do an interview. He declined. I'm not using his last name out of consideration for his privacy. Susan responded to Ryan's 2008 email with a long message all about her troubles with Josh. She also mentioned her dreams.
5: Still
2: having my dreams, but lately only the old jerk ex-boyfriend from junior high and high school appears. Although, there has been the intermittent male coworker over here appearing. Just think, that could be you.
0: Ryan told Susan he'd had several dreams about her as well. One, he said, would have made her blush. He explained he had a cell phone his wife couldn't access and said she could call him anytime for any reason. Susan gave Ryan her cell phone number as well. In another email, Ryan called Susan my dear. In a follow-up message, he said she had the right to be happy.
2: So are you going to make me happy? Problem is, I still love the guy I married. I just don't know if I'll ever get that back.
0: Ryan replied that he did not want to interfere with what Susan had going, but said, quote, I have always thought you were beautiful. Susan continued to vent about Josh's laziness. In April of 2009, she teased Ryan about possibly taking over.
2: So you are saying I'd have to marry you in order to get some work done around the house? (laughs) Too bad the plural marriage thing is frowned upon now. Maybe services in exchange for the handiwork I can't get Josh to do. Too bad I have a conscience and morals and stuff. Dang that.
7: She told me that Josh never, ever wanted sex. That... And I told her, generally, that's because he's looking at porn or he's cheating on me. <laughs> what was her response? Oh, no, no, I, I don't I don't think that. But I told her, generally, when a guy doesn't want it, um, it's one of those two factors.
2: Oh, if only I had my chocolate daddy to goof off with and influence my naughty dreams. Oh, by the way, I did have another one, but sorry, you weren't the male co-worker I dreamed about. So now, uh, you have competition.
0: There was more.
2: Josh stayed out late Thursday night for a computer geek thing, and I asked him how long he thought it'd be, like six, nine, or midnight. And he said, have your boyfriend gone by nine? And so I said to, obviously, nobody in the room, oh, did you hear that, Ryan? He says we have until nine.
0: You can just imagine what detectives thought when they first read all of those emails.
3: Definitely was that coworker, you know, he needed to be... Uh, talked with and, and ran through a CVSA.
0: Ryan agreed to come in and take the lie detector test at the end of June of 2010.
7: I, I, I don't think she would be capable of cheating on Josh because her faith.
0: Ryan spoke candidly. He denied knowing what had happened to Susan.
7: If she ran off, she would have taken the kids. Uh, I mean, at, at the risk of her life, she would have taken the kids.
0: The test showed Ryan was telling the truth. No discussion of leads in the Susan Powell investigation is complete without addressing Steve Powell's theory about Susan running off with Stephen Cocher. It's hilarious.
3: It's comical um, and... How that evolved and developed, I don't know if it was a combination of Josh and Steve collaborating and going, look, Josh.
0: I mentioned this back in Episode 9 when describing Steve's February 2010 interview with the FBI. He suggested to a pair of special agents that Susan had slipped away to Brazil.
4: I mean, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to send this stuff on to the FBI because the FBI has access to passport records. I mean, I assume you do. I don't know, maybe you guys aren't, don't have any any easier time than the rest of us trying to get information. But Josh says she didn't have a passport and I say she did.
0: Steven Kocher was 30 years old when he vanished from the area of Henderson, Nevada on December 13th of 2009. That's about a week after Susan was last seen at her home in West Valley City, Utah, more than 400 miles from Henderson. A home surveillance camera captured video of Coacher walking away from his car at a cul de sac in the Sun City Anthem retirement community. Like Susan, Coacher was a practicing member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. He had served a two year mission for the church in northeastern Brazil, speaking Portuguese. After his mission, he had bounced around several jobs in the Salt Lake City area.
4: Even though he lived in St. George, he didn't move there till April of, of last year. And before that, he worked in Salt Lake City. At one place, he was two blocks from where she worked. You know, okay. he, he worked at the Salt Lake Tribune. She worked at Fidelity Investments.
0: It's not clear what drew Kocher to the outskirts of Las Vegas on the day he disappeared, but some have speculated it might have been a job opportunity. Steve Powell had a different take
4: goes down to this area arranges for a boat you know probably in boulder city and on the 13th he comes down here abandoned his car and henderson don't ask me why henderson and don't ask me why he abandoned his car why didn't he just the the, boat no i mean god stupid I mean, obviously, it was trying to make it look like a disappearance, you know, like the Susan Powell disappearance.
0: Ellis said the coincidence of two people disappearing around the same time deserved attention.
3: The kosher thing, yeah, stepping outside of the box looking in, you know, somebody could be like, hey, now this is this is weird. You know, is there? Is there, I mean, it's just, this is just odd that these two people go missing and there's a period of time there that it was... You know, it could be very likely.
0: Steve's theory was based on a perception of Coacher that was detached from reality. He wrote this in one of many journal entries
6: about the theory. Susan has always been attracted to bad boys. I sort of visualize Stephen Kocher as a ne'er-do-well, who carries around a guitar and a skateboard, and who has a college degree by virtue of his parents' affluence.
0: Steve suggested Kocher might have disguised himself by growing a beard and mustache and putting on a hat. Susan, he said, had probably adopted a black-haired Latin look and told the special agents to seek evidence at cosmetology supply stores in Brazil.
4: you think they hooked up in West Valley somehow? I think so. I really do. I All think right, so. That's why he survived. Did you run this out by Josh, this theory? Yeah, and again, Josh's attitude is, hmm, sounds pretty plausible to me.
0: Josh was only humoring his father. He didn't buy the coacher
6: theory at all. Steve conceded as much in his journal. Josh had a hard time thinking she would run off with another man. Michael kept reminding me that I'd feel pretty bad if I touted such a theory and later found out she had been raped and tortured for weeks or months. Michael and Josh don't talk about Stephen Kocher much.
0: In August of 2010, Steve wrote one of his nephews had drawn his attention to the website Reddit, where he saw several interesting AMA, or Ask Me Anything threads. One came from a Redditor using the handle Missing MissingInAction, who on August 19th of 2010 posted an AMA thread with the title I faked my own suicide and left the country. Missing in action claimed to be a man in his late 20s who suffered from depression and fled his life in the U.S., ending up in Peru. Steve supposed missing in action might actually be Susan. He dismissed the obvious problem, that missing in action was a man.
6: I spent so much time last weekend and yesterday reading everything MIA said most of it in context with the questions posed to her. I've begun to hope I am hearing from Susan finally.
0: Steve took interest in another AMA session as well, where a Redditor described life in Fortaleza, Brazil. That's exactly where Steve believed Coacher had gone with Susan.
6: The person writing, who calls himself Slavish Muffin, I'll refer to him as SM, coincidentally, Susan's initials are SMP or SMK if she's married Coacher which I also think is a strong possibility for Susan Marie. So, it wouldn't be too unusual for Cocher to come up with a handle that uses her initials. Steve
0: was really stretching here. The theory continued to grow more elaborate and nonsensical. In an August 2, 2011
6: journal entry, Steve wrote, Josh found out today that a flight plan is not required for small planes, Susan would have known that tidbit since her father, Chuck Cox, works for the FAA. I suggested months ago that investigators check flights out of Lake Havasu, and since Stephen Kocher was in that area the day before he disappeared. And, of course, I believe Susan is with him. It also occurred to me today that maybe Chuck Cox himself picked Susan and Kocher up at one of those airports.
0: Ellis contacted police in St. George, Wendover, and Henderson, all cities tied to the Kocher case. The detectives compared notes. They created a timeline that showed Kocher was in St. George, 300 miles away from West Valley, on the day of Susan's disappearance.
3: So yeah, kudos to Steve bringing that up. Great, thank you. You know, I ran that lead down with some of my peers, and again, I wasn't expecting to find anything, but I was hopeful. You know, maybe, maybe there is a chance that uh, Mr. Kocher and her eloped. But um, no, nothing came of it. Just to be sure,
0: they compared phone records and found no contacts between Coacher's number and Susan's.
3: But it was, uh, it was, it was definitely helpful because that could have been another red herring, and now it's been put to bed, and we can focus on Josh.
0: On the next episode of Cold... We are announcing the end of the active phase of the search for Susan. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Cold. Toss us a rating or a review. You can find Cold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Cold Podcast. For video clips, pictures from the case, and more, hit up TheColdPodcast.com. Also, if Susan's story sounds familiar in your own life, In other words, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse in any form, please get immediate help. In the U.S., support is a phone call away at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or online at www.thehotline.org. A quick thank you to the team. Kristen Sorensen, Eric Openshaw, Ken Fall, Danielle Prager, Kira Faramond, Becky Bruce, Josh Tilton, Adam Mason, Jillian Friedman, and especially Cheryl The music for Cold was composed by Michael Bondmiller, except for the guitar stuff. That was me. Cold is a KSL podcast. Thank you for listening.